podcast by artists for artists we talk cash shit about everything sometimes we get messy and it all counts as art because we say so i'm mel today i'm black and a woman and an artist according to some this makes me three different people and all of them are tired this week i'm a voter suppression analyst the florida division a dialect coach for chet hanks and also the manager of the twerk team of the dallas eatery true kitchen melanie's intros always put me to shame um i'm maximiliano I uh, was planning on revamping my intro this week, um, but then didn't realize that there's only three dashes <laughs> attributed to it. Um, so, but I think that some um, sums me up. <laughs> um, but anyways, how to support Nat Turner Project, you are wondering. Nat Turner Project has a Patreon page. Um, you can sign up, become a Patreon, different tiers, different... Um, exclusive things, podcast episodes, um, buttons, merch. Um, we have an SG store where you can also find all of our Nat Turner Project stuff. Um, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, links in the show notes. If you have any questions, email us at natturnerproject0 at gmail.com and we will write it, read it on here and we will try our best to answer it. So today we are back at it again, chatting with Shopa Joshi about her work and our current political landscape. How are you, Shopa? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Uh, Max, can you tell us a little bit about Shopa? Yes, Shopa Joshi. Um, for the last four years, she's been organized. She's organized a broad swath of progressive organization, labor progressive organizations, labor unions, and tribes to advocate for comprehensive climate policy in Oregon. Before um, uh, Shilpa led a statewide coalition to victory on a campaign to ban fracking in Maryland with the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. She has filled on, she has worked on local and national environmental justice and climate issues as a youth organizer, field director, coalition manager, and lobbyist for 14 years. 
She also serves as the board chair for the National Queer, Asian and Pacific Islander Alliance and the only federal queer Asian advocacy organization in the uh, US. In Portland, she likes to make elaborate meals for friends and family and organize mutual aid to help neighbors fighting homelessness. Wildfire Smoke, Proud Boys, and the Police. She's earned her bachelor's degree in international environmental policy policy from American University. All right, thank you, Max. Um, so um, first up, um, I'm gonna ask the question that we've pretty much asked every guest that has been on since March. Um, it's been a lot. So how are you doing? How are you coping with things? Like, what do you do to kind of detox or relax or? Um, so I quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I was planning on, I was planning on leaving the campaign I was working on. It was sort of the, we had wrapped up a lot of our work, but it felt like the right time to go. And I'm really glad that I did for my mental health because uh, I have been able to get on unemployment. I've been able to think about my next steps in life, uh, grad school, and I've been able to show up for my community a lot more in this time than, in, than, I, than I was able to at the beginning of COVID when I was working like 50 hours a week on Zoom. Um, and so that feels fulfilling because anytime I can take action and just work on something or put myself back into the community, it helps me get out of the like um, pessimistic headspace that I get in. So that's been really, I mean, I think one of the, the lowest points this year was the wildfires that we had because I work on climate justice work and climate policy. And the last four years I watched Republicans and corporate interests completely destroy this bill that we had been working on for years um, that we had built from the ground up with a lot of community organizations across the straight state with tribes with labor unions. Um, with community of color organizations and the misinformation the disinformation the, the money in politics in Oregon was really overwhelming to watch as someone who was born and raised here um, and like fed this sort of like rose colored myth that we care about the environment. Um, and so it was devastating to know that the bill we had passed would have had money for families that were suffering from wildfires. And then that bill didn't pass and we were left with nothing. Um, so what helped is to start a drive to like collect as many N95 masks through donations, get those driven across the state to Southern, Southern Oregon and reservations, tribal reservations, and like just do everything we could to spread our mutual aid network. Um, and I think in addition to that, I have been cooking a lot. I've been trying to like be, at least get some fresh air a couple times a week. Cause like I'll go days without leaving my house, um, accidentally. <laughs> and the sun has been so nice. Like, I just want this sun to stay. I can do winter so much better if there's sun. Um, I lived in DC for 11 years and there was sun, it was freezing, but there was sun all winter long and it really makes a difference, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, just like really grateful to have my partner and my sibling um, living with me in my mom's house. <laughs> uh, my mom's in India right now and has been for the last six months taking care of our grandparents. Um, but it's good to know that everyone's safe and that really helps, I think.
Um, what kind of things do you like to cook? Oh, so Indian food. My family's from the West Coast of India. So a lot of regional food that you don't really find in restaurants that I grew up eating. Um, always were really daunting to me to like cook on my own. Uh, and now I have the time to like fuck it up, try again, <laughs> feed people in my pod that have no choice but to eat whatever I make. <laughs> Um, and so it's been really fun to like do the more complicated dishes um, from my childhood that I was just like, I'm, I'm going to leave that to my mom uh, and also try more um, to like branch out into other cuisines of other cultures and do a lot more research. Uh, I always found like Southern Chinese food really interesting to learn like Szechuan food, but really daunting. Like I don't have a gas stove. I don't have a wok. I don't like I'm just not going to be able to do it. And I made this really bomb spicy fish stew. Oh my God, it was so good. And it was like, I, you know, I figured it out. And so I've just been like taking more time to tackle recipes that otherwise felt like too daunting. I really love to cook. So it's like, it's been fun to just like lean into that and not have to apologize for it because like, that's all we're doing. We're just like eating food all day long. So yeah. no one's coming for me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm a great quarantine hobby. <laughs> Hell yeah. Melanie's uh, cooking up a storm over at her place too. I am. What are you making, Melanie? Um, I'm um, making a lot of like seafood and chicken. Um, and my housemate went to culinary school, so I'm benefiting from the fruits of her education and labor, so that's nice. But like the first four years that I was here in Portland, I never cooked. I was I just ate out all the time, and now all I do is cook. So it's been interesting and nice. But yeah. have you been like pretty much like isolating since March or has it been like waves or stages for you? No, I think it's been pretty seriously isolating since March. Um, I have bad lungs. It's not like diagnosed, <laughs> but I just, I had chronic bronchitis for three years. Um, my, you know, I can tell my lungs are shot and any, any allergies or anything like gives me a hacking cough. Uh, and so I've been trying to play it really safe. And then I have somebody in my pod who's a severe asthmatic. And so we've just been really, really careful. Um, but it's true. It's true what everyone says about like uh, the fatigue, the like not, you know, we need to be more serious now than we were in March. But for some reason, we can't like access that. I don't think as humans, as like a biological species, it would make sense for us to be able to access that level of like terror and fear all the time. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is like weirdly, so I'm in Washington County now and I can't really speak for everybody, but like there are way more people that were dining out here in the summer. Like we, I drove by a restaurant that was called Margarita Factory because it's okay. the suburbs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> It was like packed. It was packed with people. It was people of color, white folk, just like families. It was so stressful to look at. And then boom, it's like, you know, we're going up again in numbers and everything shut down again. So I don't know. The fatigue is real. Um, uh, yeah. And feels like I'm, I am applying to grad school. And it's also, I emailed some of the schools to just ask like, fall 2021, we're gonna be in classrooms, right? And they're like, no, <laughs> there's no guarantee whatsoever. And I was like, Fuck. okay, well, guess I'll just apply anyway. <laughs> I think at this point we're shooting for maybe winter 2021, maybe. 
and that's being very optimistic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're applying to grad school. What are you what do you want to study? So I'm uh, I was a I have been a community organizer for over a decade. Uh, I think that working with people and interpersonal things comes really naturally to me. And I have always shied away from like the hard policy um, work <laughs> because it's complicated <laughs> and it's very math and economics heavy sometimes. And, you know, and more often than not, there's always like a policy wonk that, that works with, you know, it's just never been me. I've never been the one to be like they, that is, is on the campaign that's had to like distill down the really complicated stuff, you know? But what I realized is the frustration that has led me to feel, especially in the environmental activism work that I do, is that I get relegated to a second tier position where I can't advocate for communities that are otherwise not in the room. And my, I feel like my role um, and my strength is pushing white institutions and um, that would otherwise be completely unaccountable to indigenous communities, black communities, Poor, poor communities, working class, white communities um, in the solutions that we are trying to implement on this massive problem that's impacting us all, but really impacting some people way more and is going to impact some people a lot more. Um, and it was really frustrating in my experience of the last four to seven years to see that like, there's always a, another room with another closed door. Like no matter how much you are told that there's a seat at the table for the people that there needs to be a seat at the table for. So I don't mean me, I don't mean like South Asian, you know, South Asian, grew up middle class, you know, white collar parents, whatever. I mean like farm workers union that we organized with that their political director found out, you know, three days later that there had been a meeting with like some lawmakers and she hadn't been there and that was it. You know, that that, that was done. And then we're moving on to the next part of the bill and it's like, why the lip service, like if she can't do it. And I, I just wanna, I want, I wanna be able to like credentialize myself within the system as much as that sucks and get that master's in public policy degree so that at least on paper, you can't deny me access and you can't deny the people that I fight for access by proxy. Um, and if that doesn't work, then at least I'll have the language that we will bring our own solutions to the table and they'll have to work with us, you know, and I'll have the, I'll be able to speak that oppressor's language because I saw that used so much against us, especially from corporate interests when they would talk, when they would talk money and economics at us. And I knew they were lying. Like I knew the policy that we were working on had been implemented in other places and had not shut down all of business, right? And made everyone's cost of living go up and like gas prices go up and everything. But that's what they hammered every single time. And they had this really threatening language, economic language that I just like wanna be able to combat with right off the bat and say, I, I see all of your fallacies here. And this is why we've come up with our own proposal. And we have, you know, 50,000, 500,000 people behind us. And we're just gonna run this now. And so now we are the center of gravity and you have to work with us. And so, I mean, that's why the Green New Deal is so inspiring and what Sunrise Movement does is so inspiring and like all of environmental justice activists and the power that they've been building is so inspiring to me. So we'll see. I mean, I really, I'm not like an academic. It doesn't come naturally to me. I got a really shitty GPA in my undergrad. 
Um, so I've also had to like deal with those demons, like stuff that I just decided to forget about for the last 10 years that like I have to now just submit that transcript <laughs> and like <laughs> all these cool sounding classes that I don't even remember going to because I was such an asshole. Um, but like, I want to go to school and just like one last time and see if I can learn what, what they, what they're all talking about and then bring it back to, um, to community and then see where we, see where I can go from there. So would your plan be to like come back to Portland after you finish grad school? Possibly. I mean, I was born and raised here. I was fortunate to work on this big campaign here after living in DC for 11 years. Um, Oregon has so many amazing organizers, campaigns, um, movement organizations that are like, you know, for and by the movement. And so it's, it's also like going where you're needed and like going where you're invited, especially as somebody that doesn't hold the identities of, of person that is most impacted by climate change. Like I do, if I was in India, I would, and my family in India, I do have that, but it's like a complicated dynamic of like what, what oppression defines us is also the, like the privilege and the oppression that defines us work together, you know? And so I can't deny that I have privilege in a lot of places while I may also be impressed in some ways. And so I want to go to where I'm called and where I'm needed. And I think I'm really drawn. I got to do, I got to work. Um, I was really fortunate to work with um, tribal nations in Oregon and Washington uh, to work on this bill. And I've never, I, it was like, it was a really light bulb moment for me. Like it just connected me with, um, there, there was just so much to it that I can't, I'm still working on articulating, but I want to um, be an advocate for tribal communities, I think, in the West. And so that would be, um, that would definitely be at the invitation of a tribal advocacy nonprofit or a campaign or, but I made a lot of friends in that, you know, in those communities. Um, and I hope that I'd be invited back to like help with something after I graduate. Now the work that you do um, sounds very involved, um, but I am curious, like it's, it's, it doesn't feel like something you kind of stumble into. How did you get into this kind of work? Uh, I used to be really hard on myself about like my journey. I think, I think we tend to be really hard on ourselves, especially as queer people, if you think about what you should and shouldn't have done in your 20s. And I gravitated towards this because of a lot of different factors. From a young age, I was fortunate to be able to travel to India a couple times and saw the really, really stark divide when how people live. Um, I saw the degradation that was happening in the environment in India as I was getting older, almost at the same pace that I was getting older, like the smog was building up, the water was getting more unclean, like entire rainforests were being cut down, like that was what was happening in Bombay and in India and things like that. Um, and then I grew up in this bubble, which is like Portland, Oregon, Beaverton, Oregon, which we were taught recycling in elementary school, you know, and we we're taught about like the environment, like all these like nice things at our public elementary school. And then I went to Washington DC and that was within the country that I had decided like the country understands where we are with um, environmental action when I was 18 years old in 2005. 
And then I got to this place that were like food deserts, which I had never experienced before. Lots of food deserts, extreme redlining, um, a lot of pollution in black and brown communities. Uh, there was a coal-fired power plant in Anacostia in Southeast DC that was literally providing the electric power for the congressional buildings. So they built a coal-fired power plant in the blackest part of the city to like power the congressional, to power Congress. Like I had never experienced so much environmental injustice that close before. Um, I, all, I had relegated it to something that happened in other places like India or whatever, you know? Um, and so, and then when I was in college, Hurricane Katrina happened and I saw the very, very stark reality of what it means to be black, what it means to be brown in this country and what impact that has on your health and your, I learned about Cancer Alley, which is where all of the chemical refineries are in Louisiana and how much, um, just like, just being in DC made me realize like how much violence and risk of death is enacted on black and brown people, particularly black people in this country, um, completely unnoticed like not even to do with police violence or with gun violence, um, but just the proximity to factories, to power plants, to toxic waste sites, to bus depots, to all of those things. And so I think that is what really polarized me and it just became something I couldn't ignore. Um, and then when I was in school, I actually went to school to study diplomacy because I did model United Nations in high school and I was like I want to be a diplomat I don't really know what that is also my family is very conservative and I need to get away from them and all of the international relations <laughs> schools are on the other side of the country so no one can say anything to me um, and so I was like very gay and like just needed to get away and so I got there and then I had you know then I had like all these questions basically about my surroundings that I couldn't reconcile with what I was learning and so I got really deep into activism on and off campus um, and just looked to help wherever I could. And so there was a campaign to shut down that power plant in Anacostia. That was one of the first things I ever got involved in just like as a volunteer, as a student. Um, there were so a lot of campaigns like within the city uh, that people were working on. And then I, uh, I always worked through college. I worked in restaurants. Um, so I, you know, had to like fund part of my education, um, and living in DC with working in restaurants. And so, um, I didn't, I didn't actually have like a mentor or like an internship that was like, here, first you do this, you like work at the Sierra club and then we'll like hold your hand and, you know, you'll go and do this thing at this other nonprofit. Like, I think I was like one of those, like fell in the cracks DC uh, graduates like everyone else was like working on the hill and I was like working in restaurants um, but I liked that I kind of thought that I wanted to go into like food and I don't know I really really love food and so I, I thought I would do something with that but I just felt so pulled I could tell I think by the time I was like 24 or 25 I could tell that there was something missing because I was I had so much energy to take on really intensely stressful work and I was channeling that towards like working doubles in restaurants. Um, but then I would like go to actions and protests and stuff on the weekend. Yeah. And, you know, I'd have like people who cared about me that were like trying to put it together for me. Um, but I also thought I wasn't good enough for the cause because any movement work I think that people do, especially back in the day a little bit, like 15 years ago, you had to be a certain kind of person. You had to like 
you know, be the activist and like have all the answers and know the right thing to say. And you had read everything. And like, I don't know, there was a lot of imposter syndrome too, where I was like, well, I'm not any of those things. So I must not be a good enough activist or like, you can't hire me at an environmental nonprofit because I had this like terrible GPA and like, you know, all those things. And so um, it took a while for me to come around to it, but it was like denying my, I think it was just like denying my passion. Um, and then once I let myself get over that fear of like failing or feeling like I wasn't good enough, um, I, it just kept clicking and I just kept getting, I got hired and I got to do the work um, and it's exhausting. It's like super exhausting work. Um, I think I do have a lot of bandwidth for um, working exhaustive hours and working on intense interpersonal issues um, because I am a coalition builder. And so I used to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one organizing with like youth to like get high school students and college students like into the work, into the movement. I live two blocks away from Howard University. And so like I helped Howard, like students come into like more into environmental justice work that was happening in the city. Um, and then I realized I, I wanted to like, I was good at building networks. And so um, with that comes uh, strife and tension and, you know, people are complicated and multifaceted and um, have histories. And uh, so I think I, I've really um, recognized that I do have a pretty large bandwidth for um, interpersonal uh, drama and capacity for organizing people because people are complicated um yeah so that's that's how I got to where I am now um but I'm constantly like reframing the story that I used to tell myself of my 20s which is like you were you were a bad person because you partied and you worked in restaurants and that's not really true I mean <laughs> I was just a kid and I did find a way to what I love and I'm really fortunate for it um, and I am continuously impressed and excited by younger people creating more space um, to be in the movement, whatever movement that is um, now, because I think that there's, there's so many, you know, facets to social media, but there's just an access to information also, which is really exciting. And there's less people that are able to like gatekeep movement spaces now, because before, if you really, if you like didn't know who to know, like it was hard to get in. I mean, I still think it's hard to get into, I think it's hard to get the kind of job that I've had, you know, like you, I have had like a pipeline, so to speak in the last like seven years where I've like been the youth organizer. And then I was like a whatever, anti-pipeline anti organizer. And then, you know, I'm like, now I've like worn all those hats. And so, but you can't go to college for it. Like you can't, like it's, it's, it's a little frustrating when someone's like, I wanna do what you do. And I'm like, yeah, you have to have the privilege to like volunteer. Like, you know, I, I worked full-time, I, I was student full-time and I volunteered. Like I was really <laughs> burnt out a lot when I was, when I was younger, um, but it's, it's frustrating. It's not like being an accountant or being a nurse or something that somebody else sees you in and they're really excited about your role. And you're like, yeah, you can go to nursing school. Like, there's no organizer school, um, you know, you just have to like show up. And I think, I think what's tough is that our movements, uh, the, the, the like nonprofit infrastructure is still very, very white for that reason, because 
you have to play the game and you have to like keep playing the game, keep playing the game. I've been in so many spaces where I'm the only person of color and I am not even that. I'm not even like, you didn't check the right box if you thought you were bringing me on, you know, like, <laughs> and I can't be the only person here that's the person of color. So like, it's, it is, and that's exhausting. Like I've talked to so many women of color, people of color, queer people of color that are indigenous and black that are just like, I can't do this. Like you grew up in a white place, me, and you can like play this game, which I, I know that I can, cause I've been, I've been whitewashed. I've been assimilated my entire life. And that's unlearning that I'm doing now, but still the privilege of it is that I can just like hang out in white spaces until my ears bleed and like it's fine for the most part and other people shouldn't do that to themselves and can't right so like this is the divide that we come to is like yeah I get to be in this space um I also really push for these spaces to not look like this and other spaces entirely to be developed that get nonprofit money um that have no white people in them at all like 0, 0.0 white people <laughs> because that's the only way we're gonna have more people coming into this work for the long haul because um, all the kids that are active, like activists and excited by this moment, all the work that we've been doing this summer, um, I wonder if there's space for a lot of them or some of them as like in, in like what becomes the institutional activist space, which is nonprofits, you know, yeah. that was a lot, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I have like several questions. I don't know which one I should ask first. <laughs> Um, also, you could like you could like tell me to wrap it up or like no no you're no fine. no it's good yeah people that uh people that talk a lot are great um, okay. interview ease <laughs> um okay I'll start with this one um can you talk about um what are like uh, successful campaigns you were on and maybe campaigns that weren't successful or that failed and then like potentially what some of those like pitfalls are and then what that like looks like is like a failed campaign failed or is it just like a step towards it becoming successful uh so i um when i graduated college obama was president he got really excited about this climate bill not a lot of people know about called the waxman marquee bill it was a federal bill um, to take a policy from california that had been developed by bureaucrats with very little no community input whatsoever called the cap and trade bill take it to the federal level and just make that how we solve climate change what it would have done is it would have put a price on pollution for major polluters per ton of pollution, like $12 a ton, $15 a ton, and then made big polluters like fossil fuel companies, the agriculture sector, you know, the electric, electricity sector, coal plants pay for every ton of pollution they're putting into the atmosphere to the federal government. And then we would we collectively would have used that money to transition our own lives off of fossil fuels. So get more people into electric cars, you know, make our buildings cleaner, make our houses like use less electricity and things like that. All good in theory. In practice, what was happening in California was you had a lot of community activists and environmental justice activists that were sounding the alarm on that policy because 
it was benefiting all the wrong people. It was continuing to line the pockets. It was basically a closed loop of money that was going to the, to, and none of it was being seen in the community. It was just going to line the pockets of like clean green developers, you know, that were like not really caring about alleviating pollution burdens of black and brown communities that were still inhaling coal dust in Richmond, California, and were living next to fracking all in the valley and stuff like that. And so you had this major alarm that was sounded and that and corporations didn't want to pay a, a price on pollution at the federal level. So the thing fell apart. And it was like this major effort to pull it together by a lot of the like, you know, institutional white enviro folks um, totally fell apart at the federal level. Um, a year, basically the year I graduated from college and it, it turned into this, it turned into this like implosion where like nobody wanted to talk about a big climate solution at the federal level anymore. And that he, Obama didn't want to run on it when he ran for a second term. Like it had just been such a fiasco, you know? And so I graduated with that as the playing field without really realizing it. Cause like I wasn't really <laughs> paying attention um, but this is the history that I was like sort of like, you know, um, went into. Um, to find just like a bunch of states wanting to get work done by themselves, you know, like all it sort of inverted and in like all the state legislatures and all the nonprofits and all the campaigns are focusing on states and specifically states like Maryland, like Oregon, like New York State, like Massachusetts, like progressive states where you could get shit done. Right. And so one of the things that was really disheartening about that is the states that probably have the most environmental injustice, like Texas like Louisiana, um, like the Gulf Coast in general, um, just saw all of the money and the energy like suck out from those places, right? And it was just like what always happens, which is like black folk trying to figure out a way to protect their communities by themselves. And then like rich progressive coastal states doing all this fun stuff with like, you know, things like the renewable portfolio standard, which is a complicated way of saying a state has to purchase a certain amount of clean energy by a certain year. Um, so we're just now we're just like things are moving at like very different paces and almost like feeling like they're moving away from each other. And so one of the campaigns that I worked on in Maryland was to put a ban on fracking, which is so cool. Like we built this whole campaign around it. You know, um, the loss that was there, though, was like at the same time, gas companies realized there was a way to a new way to drill for gas in the country. It was called fracking. I don't know if you two are familiar but for the people listening that aren't familiar with fracking, it is an incredibly invasive way of getting gas out of the ground. This is not the gas we use in our cars. This is natural gas. It's also known as methane gas or fracked gas. It is what comes on in your stove if you have a gas stove and what heats your home if, and your water if you have a gas water heater. Um, restaurants use it in their operations and their ranges and stuff, but it's like a pretty, I mean, it's like limited use. And then there's gas fired power plants that are like, putting electricity into our entire grid, right? And so they found this really horrible way of extracting gas that was pumping hundreds of millions of gallons of chemicals in and like all this fresh water down into the earth, exploding this rock apart and then capturing little bubbles of gas. Um, and they wanted, the gas companies like in 2015 wanted to compress it and ship it to, to Japan and India. And Maryland was one of those places where they wanted to ship out. So we built this whole campaign at my old job to like try to stop this export facility, right? Because we knew that like, not only would it have devastating impacts on all of Pennsylvania, Maryland, that's where they were gonna do the drilling. Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, as far away as like Ohio, 
you know, um, Kentucky. And so we were like, we have to stop this just for here. But also like, if you create a foreign market, it just like blows the lid off, right? Now you can like drill like crazy and like have somewhere to send it. Um, we lost that campaign. Like we, we lost, they, they ended up building the project. But what we did get out of it, the silver lining of it is like we had educated thousands of people across the state of Maryland into how bad fracking is, right? Because in order to talk about why the export facility was bad, you had to talk about why fracking was bad first. And so you had all these people that were super pissed off at the idea of fracking coming to Maryland where it hadn't come yet. And all these people that had learned about like cows dropping dead and birth defects rising in Western Pennsylvania and cancer rates rising in Western Pennsylvania where fracking is rampant, you know? And they're like, well, we don't want that here. So we decided to pivot and we decided to build a fracking ban campaign out of that loss. Um, and because we were like, okay, all these educated people are now like pissed off. We're going to bring them to the state capitol in Annapolis, Maryland, and we're going to pass this ban bill. And we did. I mean, it took several years. Um, it was sort of a freak victory uh, when it happened because a Republican governor signed it into law. Um, and we never would have thought in a million years we would have gotten a Republican governor to support a ban on an entire kind of drilling, fossil fuel drilling. Um, but he only did it to spite the... <laughs> Um, the Senate president, because he really hated the Senate president, who was a Democrat, who had invested a lot of money into building gas-fired power plants in <laughs> Southeast DC and in, in like South, Southeast Maryland, where it was like a bunch of poor black community. And he wanted to build five gas-fired power plants there, this Democrat, this old white man. And the Republican governor was like, you know what? fuck you, fuck all these fracking activists who won't leave me alone or are like literally chaining themselves to the governor's mansion. And I can get rid of both of you in one go by just signing this bill, I'm gonna do it. And so we were like, what? <laughs> so that was, I think that was like a good example of how you can pivot from a loss and try to make it into a win or try to build on it. Um, it, it's definitely one of my organizing ethos is, you know, keep educating, keep organizing and never give up um, because there's always more people. I think education is the, the foundation of all of the movement building and organizing and community organizing work that I do. Um, because when you give people information about their lives, about what impacts them, about what is making them hurt, about what's making their families hurt, um, and you give them that knowledge uh it's empowering and you can't take it away from them i mean that's what happened to me is like the more i knew the more i couldn't ignore what was going on um and it doesn't get everybody you know some folks just don't like to know and like just try to keep it moving and that's fine but like there there are people that will say okay i have five minutes to dedicate to something and i remember that thing that i was told that is happening in my community um maybe I'll call my city councilor, you know, or maybe I'll like do, and now you have somebody that's able to take action, even if they're a single parent or they're working two jobs or something like that. So yeah, educate, keep educating, meet people where they're at and don't stop until you get it. It seems like, um, yeah, the losses would be really painful, but it also seems like maybe because of that, the, the victories are, are very sweet. Did y'all like celebrate real hard? after that um that win <laughs> we did yeah we did celebrate i think we need to take more time to celebrate um the wins don't always look like wins because the institutions that we're working in and working against 
um, are never going to be our liberation. They're never going to grant us liberation. They were not created. They were created to the literal anth antithesis of our liberation. And so they're gonna keep giving us crumbs. Um, and I think one of the ways that we can exhaust ourselves the easiest and fastest is by not celebrating it and by trying to just diminish all the work we've done to just crumbs because it keeps chipping away. You know, uh, it keeps chipping away at these, these institutions are not solid at all as we've seen this year. You know, the last few years, they're not, they're a joke and they're a sham and they're held together by rage and hate <laughs> and, you know, paper clips. And so we should just fight. And I mean, we should celebrate when it, even when it feels like it wasn't a win, even when people are gonna be critical of you for celebrating, I think that's such a shitty thing that happens. It's like when people are like, well, you didn't stop, you didn't abolish borders. <laughs> like I was working, I was working on this campaign um, to get driver's licenses for undocumented folks in the state of Oregon, right? And it was a complicated issue because like, obviously people were nervous that you're like creating a record with the state of who the undocumented people are, right? Um, there's a lot more nuance to it than I'm able to convey in just this example, but like, we got the win, we secured it by like having voters. We, so, we, so the activists that worked on it passed the bill in the state legislature. And then the state legislature was like, you know, actually I think voters need to vote on this. So they have, they have the right to do that. They can pass the bill and then send it to the voters. And then it passed on the ballot. And so it was like secure, it's gonna happen. Undocumented folks can have driver's licenses now. And we were able to make sure that the driver's license would not have any mark or any symbol on it that would would designate that it was being held by an undocumented person that's very critical right um because if you're pulled over in like racist ass malala or whatever you don't want that cop colluding with like some ice buddy to like call somebody right away so all that happened there was a lot of celebration you know like latinx organizing groups have been doing this work for years and years to build to this moment and there were leftists you know, that were like, well, you didn't get citizenship or you didn't abolish borders. I mean, I'm like really diminishing what the crit criticisms were of the celebration, but that's what it came down to. And that was like insulting as hell. Like, you know, I mean, we got to take what we can where we can. Those families are safer because they're not driving without documentation. You know, you can still get to, from point A to point B without being fucked with. And that's like the most critical thing when you're trying to take your kids to school and you're trying to get to work, like think about where people are at now and try to help there. I think that's one of the like, that's one of the things that has felt so frustrating about my work is like the naysayers never have good ideas. It's not like they're, it's not like they're like trashing your shit and also providing a really great solution that no one thought of, right? They're <laughs> never doing that. They're like, they're just trashing your shit and being bitter. And like, that makes me mad. But yeah, we did celebrate a lot. Um, you know, there's always the naysayers. And I think, I think loss is also deeply felt when you like get too tied to the outcomes, which is really hard to do when it's like you're doing emotional work for your community. Um, um, so you mentioned that you also do stand up. <laughs> I feel like a fraud because like <laughs> I definitely haven't done any this year, right? <laughs> and then the last year in 2019 was like a really intense year for the campaign. So I didn't really do a lot then, but yes, from 
2015, 2014 to 2018-ish, I did. I used to do stand-up. I want to get back into it. I miss writing jokes. I miss Would you go to like open mics and stuff? Yeah, I, so there was um, in, in DC, I have a friend, Chelsea Short, who is a hilarious, amazing comedian. You should look them up. Um, I was really frustrated with the scene being so male and so white in DC. And so they created a workshop for queer trans people of color to learn com- learn how to write comedy and learn how to do stand up because it's not it's not like intuitive really like you have to like know you just you got it it helps to know like joke structuring and um, how to like w- working the room working doing audience work and stuff like that and so I took their workshop which was really revelatory to me because I just I like cracking jokes I like making people laugh. Um, I, I do think that humor is a really genuine way of connecting with people. Um, and I feel like if I can make somebody laugh, I have, I have, like, I, I feel like things are going to go better, you know, like regardless of what side of whatever we find anything on. And so, but I really, I really enjoyed that workshop and Chelsea encouraged me to go to some standups to some open mics in DC. And I did a couple showcases there and then I moved here and I was really worried about like, how white the scene was, you know, I just like, I was like, well, I meet comedians who care about putting up people of color on stage or like care about what other comics are saying and not have, like, not have it be wildly offensive. And I have to sit through all these like wildly offensive, stupid jokes and, and, and then go up and perform. Um, so I did, I like, I met, I met some queers, um, queer white women, but they really wanted to like bring more people of color into <laughs> the space. Um, and create space for that. And they held, you know, they, they held a series of showcases that like got me um, sort of in the community and, and meeting folks. Um, one of them is a showcase called That's What She Said, um, which is still running. Um, another one was just called Les Stand Up, um, L-E-Z. And that was, that's, that was been around for a long time. And I was on that show a couple times. And then I think if I had been able to perform more in 2020, I was going to work up my nerve to try to um, audition for a show like Minority Retort. Minority Retort is a pretty great show that's all people of color um, in Portland and it's well-produced. And there's Helium Comedy Club has like, um, like challenges I think it's like Thursday night where like and you can sign up and anybody gets five minutes and it's like a real comedy club so there's like people that have bought you know drinks and they're sitting at the little tables with like the little lights and everything and like it's like a real comedy so you you can bomb (laughs) or you can get on to the next round and then they like invite you back if you do well and so sorry go ahead oh um and so yeah that was I was sort of getting my feet wet and then one of my favorite that was a free show um, that was every Monday night at Eastburn was called It's Gonna Be Okay. And um, it's a really sweet show. I love that it was free. It was in the basement of Eastburn and the producer always made sure that there were people of color on every set and had a really strong policy against anyone saying stupid shit. And um, so no punching down is like a term in comedy, you know, make jokes that like punch up. So like, if you are a person of privilege, just don't make jokes about people less privileged than you, you know, like it's pretty standard. 
someone should tell Dave Chappelle, but like whatever. Um, <laughs> just like simple shit. Um, but uh, so I really liked It's Gonna Be Okay because it was always like a really warm space. Um, and I, I miss doing stand up a lot. <laughs> when you were talking about um, like shows and minority retort, is that like a group that like constantly performs together? Is that like what you mean by that or? Minority Retort is produced by two comedians. I'm forgetting their names now. Um, I think a black guy and an Indian guy. And they just really prioritize, the, it's, it's a showcase that they run called Minority Retort. And so they invite, they like book com comedians of color to be on their monthly show. Um, and they bring in people from other parts of the Pacific Northwest. And so it's like, it's always like a really good, it's a really funny night without fail, yeah. Um, how do you think uh, you're like organizing your skills with like people from organizing come into your stand up or your like stand up comes into your organizing with people? Uh, I think there's a lot of overlap because I am, a, I'm like really a people person. So when I'm on stage, I'm trying to connect with people. I try to like make fun of myself a little bit, you know, try to draw people in. Um, and when I'm organizing, I do the same. I, I, I just like try to do the same thing. I think a little bit where I'm trying to connect with people where they're at. Um, and I really like to crack jokes with people um, to like ease the tension. So like Sometimes in organizing spaces, stuff can feel really tense or it can feel like really charged. Uh, and so I do like bringing humor into a space to just remind everyone that like, yeah, we're doing important shit right now, but like, it's all, you know, we can also just like be friendly and um, be like cool with each other, even though we're about to go into this like intimidating meeting with like a lawmaker or something. Um, and so I, I do think one thing that I haven't done very well is I was challenging myself last year to try to write jokes about activism. And I think, I think I'm just like, I don't know if people will care, you know, like, I think there's a room for that. I think it's like the fundraiser at some, you know, like social justice organization. They have me like be the MC or something. I think it would work there. But um, I've, every time I would try to bring political jokes into just like, um, let's stand up or something like that. There's always like a line where people will laugh to a certain point and then they'll be like, oh, is your shtick like politics jokes? You know, like, are you gonna have to listen to like shit about Obama for the next 20 minutes? And I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry. Ah. <laughs> so I'm still figuring that out. Cause I like, yeah, I don't wanna be like, I am a correspondent on the Daily Show. And now you have to like listen to this for 10 minutes, so. Are there um, recurring themes in your stand-up? Yeah, I think I talk a lot about being gay and being Indian. Um, I want to be careful not to do that like thing where I dump on my culture because I think white people laugh in a way that's different from when people of color laugh at when we laugh at ourselves. Yeah. And doing comedy in a place like Portland, I, I'm always very aware of that dynamic. Like, um, and I do attribute that uh, awareness to Dave Chappelle of all people because you know he was like I don't like the way these white people are laughing at the Chappelle show it doesn't feel right it's not why it's not the kind of laughs I was trying to get mm -hmm. so I, I I'm careful about that I hate when Indian community Indian comedians do that shit I just like really hate it when they put on the accent and they're like you know doing the whole like head tilt thing all over stage and um feels very corny to me so I I but I do like to focus on like 
things that are quite frankly hilarious about my culture and that are hard to get away from, which is like, you know, uh, Kamala Harris being appointed vice president and then like the Indian meme of the dad being like, why not president? <laughs> like, why only vice president, you know? I think that shit's hilarious. <laughs> like, I can totally see some family member, like, I don't know if I ever run for office being like, why not this other thing? Like, why didn't you get it? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, themes about queerness. I think when I moved back to Portland, I did a lot of jokes about like sort of like culture shock of like re-entering into this white space from DC of all places. Mm -hmm. um, where I, I had a joke that was like, I'm like, I'm like a DC six, but I'm like a Portland nine, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> dear. <laughs> and that one killed. Like people just knew it. Like it was like, I was like, okay, we're we're all on the same page here. Everyone can see it. Everyone can see it, right? Okay. Uh, so I, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of like thinking that everybody that worked at New Seasons went to high school with me because they were being so nice to me. <laughs> and like asking, asking, like, but how are you doing in this way that I was like, Bethany? Like, is it you? Like, did we? were we in speech and debate together? Like, I don't, it was just, it was strange, you know? People didn't, people didn't interact with you that way on the East Coast. Um, and I think uh, now I am, I am wondering like what my content will be like after this year. I think, I think comedians have been talking about that because we have like the pandemic comedians that we've been following on Instagram that have really blown up like Jordan Person yeah. and like, like other people that have just been like hilarious to watch but their comedy is so moment specific it's like so time-based that I'm wondering like what is any of our comedy going to look like next year because you can only talk about the shit show that was this year so much right you have to be pretty talented to like make an, an earnest joke that people are actually going to laugh at like I don't think people are going to want to think about it when they're <laughs> finally able to go to a comedy venue maskless and like be in a room together like you know, so like, but then it's like, okay, well, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? You know, so it's going to be, maybe it'll just be a lot of like very um, observational humor or something that I'll do. Who knows? <laughs> um, do you use or go on a TikTok? Oh my gosh. Okay. It's so embarrassing. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm not down because I'm applying to grad school, right? I have like work. I have like earnest, like pages of like to-do lists <laughs> that I need to do and so I was like I'm not downloading the app but what do I do instead I watch TikTok compilations on YouTube <laughs> what's wrong with me <laughs> and they're like 30 minutes it'll say I can see the timestamp it'll be like 17 minutes and I'll fucking click on it <laughs> like sure <laughs> what did you do for the last four hours like, <laughs> I don't know it's embarrassing I have to like tell my partner that I didn't do anything all day because I didn't even it wasn't even I was on TikTok I was watching TikTok compilations on YouTube or like compilations of like arrested development but you know what that's field research though it so. is for something <laughs> <laughs> are y'all are y'all on TikTok um, um, I'm officially too old to subscribe to any more new platforms. I stopped at Instagram. That's my line. <laughs> I downloaded TikTok, I think maybe at the start, yeah, the start of quarantine as like um, another uh, activity. Um, 
but then I, it's slowly been taking up more and more of my time. <laughs> I don't like make videos. I just watch videos. But you just scroll. Yeah. I'm thinking like, cause like I see how many people just randomly blow up from random videos and that you like make money off TikTok videos. I was like, maybe I should just like throw it out there see what happens. You know, just... Wait, people are making money off, off of TikTok? Oh, yeah. I think you get a certain amount of money for per view. I think it's like 200 views is like 20 bucks or something. I don't know. Don't quote me on that at all. But um, that can't be. It can't be that high. We would have no more music on Spotify. We would have to go on TikTok just to hear music. If that but I think people that have like 100,000 followers like can live off of TikTok or something like that. Wow. It's weird. And then some people are like, I went to bed. I posted a video and like that was like stitching or duetting somebody else. And then I woke up with like 100,000 followers, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because like their video blows up overnight or something. And then they like rent a house in LA and like become what? an influencer. Yeah. All right. Max, <laughs> you gotta get on it. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I'm has, like my age is slowing me down because like I'm like, should I? <laughs> should I? <laughs> do, it, do it for Nat Turner Project. <laughs> yeah. Oh. We need a TikTok and NT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I don't know. I, I'm, Mel, I'm with you. It's like, I feel a little too old for like, I don't know. It's, see, there's so many buttons. I don't know. It's a lot. It's just, it's too much. And I feel like if a TikTok is really good enough, it'll, it'll find its way to Twitter somehow. Someone yeah. can post it. Totally. That is also true. <laughs> um, so you've mentioned and we all know 2020 has been a hellscape in a lot of ways. Um, so like, what are your general kind of like thoughts about the past year or so? Like, what has this year taught you? <laughs> I should have been better prepared for this question. But let's see. I think this year has taught me that I can do with less social interaction than I thought. I mean, I'm a pretty extreme extrovert and I am not very good at spending time by myself. Um, and so this year has taught me that I can spend time by myself and that I actually enjoy it in some capacities. And it's also taught me specifically about what it is about my extrovertism that I miss. Cause I wasn't able to really put my finger on it. It's like, do you like to be around people all the time? Do you like parties? Do you like, you know, do you just like talking a lot? You know, what is it? And I've realized this year has really helped me crystallize that I miss just like the crush of people. Like I don't, I don't, I have good friends and I like spending one-on-one -on -one time with my friends. But the thing I've realized I miss the most is spending time among like hundreds of strangers where we're all like sort of collectively in each other's presence, but also not, but sort of ignoring each other at like a carnival or a queer dance party or you know, TBA, like I really miss TBA. My house is two blocks away from TBA. 
And it was so much fun to just like go wander around and just like people energy. I miss people energy and also like low stakes people energy because this year has been very high stakes people energy where you're like, okay, it is 5 p.m. We are going to Zoom. I have wine. Now we are going to talk. And it's like, <laughs> just like so much. <laughs> and I was like, damn, I really love you, but I also don't want to interact with people in this way. Like, I just want to like flirt and then like go on to the next person and then you know, like have 15 second conversations or five minute conversations and, uh, you know, like smoke a bowl outside of TBA basically. <laughs> um, and I, it was, it was helpful for me to like be able to name that because I won't take for granted my penchant for organizing parties, organizing rallies and protests, organizing big gatherings of people um, it feels good to be able to name it because I do feel so innately drawn to it. And it is in, in fact, like a skill and like a hobby, I think to like bring people together for me in a way that people really enjoy. Like I, I throw a really, really big pride party at my house every year for the last three years. And this, la this last one was like the best party I've ever thrown in my life. I think, <laughs> I really think so. Like my, my partner is an astrologer. And after the fact, they were telling me some shit about the stars and how amazing of a night it was for parties. Like that specific, there's something happening. I'm obviously not an astrologer, but there was something happening in the stars that night that made it super fortuitous to have a party. And it was the best party. And I was like, I really, okay. So I can like embrace that about myself in a way that I didn't before 2020. Um, that it was just like something that I would do and not really think about or ascribe much attention to. But um, I have learned that about myself. And I've, I've, I've like been able to name like this deep longing that I have um, that I, I didn't, that I really did take for granted just being like around people in a way that I, I never, even sitting alone at a, like at a movie theater, you know, and just like having a hundred people around you and like watching a movie together and hearing everyone laugh or like everyone gasp at the same time. Like, there's, there's such, there's, there's just, we're such a pack animal, you know, like I really miss being in a pack, I think. So. Um, when was it or how long did it take you to realize like, oh, that's like my thing or like, this is specifically like I what think I it was pride. I think it was like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't go to the parade, you know, like I, it's not like capital P pride with all it's like corporate shit, but it is my favorite holiday of the year. And I do appreciate how much our community shows up and shows out for it, especially in newly defined ways as we're like getting over the like corporate saturation that I think we felt in like the early 2000s to like 2010, like the, the Bank of America float, you know, next to the like NYPD float at New York Pride was like, we, we all collectively decided that, that was like abject bullshit and so now we're just like going into new directions with it and I think pride is really exciting again for me it makes me sound so old but like whatever I don't care <laughs> I'm 33 <laughs> I've been doing pride for like I don't know 20 years now <laughs> um and so yeah I I think that's when I realized it um and I also realized that like nature only does so much for me. And I know that's like a weird thing to say <laughs> as like an environmental justice activist, like someone who grew up in Oregon with trees. Like I, that's good, you know, like I'm glad for like all the forests and all the people 
who love to romp through the forest, unending amounts. That's just not me. Like I, that fulfills a certain part of me that I felt was very needs met this year because we did a lot of camping. Um, we went out, we went hiking, we went to all these cool places, you know, my partner and I, and like, that was dope. But um, that's also, I've re- something I learned is like, they could do that uh, to a much more endless degree than I can necessarily do that. <laughs> you know and so whatever (laughs) something i learned (laughs) um what's your zodiac sign yes um i was thinking about it and i was hoping i wouldn't have to guess but um (laughs) melanie do you want to do you want to guess first melanie oh me first (laughs) yeah give me some more time (laughs) wait to put me on the spot I think I think Melanie is a uh, Virgo and Max is a Cancer. No, no, you're right. You're actually well for me. You're right. Okay. Um. <laughs> I was trying to say my I'm a Pisces. Oh, okay. Well, water. That's cool. Yeah. Wait, are you ready to guess now, Max? Um, no, so waiting for you to guess. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Nice um, try, Melanie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sagittarius? Close. Close as in close on the timeline or close, close as, as in as energy? As element. Element. Mm-hmm. Um, are you an Aries? No, I'm a Leo. Uh, I was going to say Leo. Dang. Yeah, that makes I sense. I usually have my hair out. You know, it's like a whole Leo. It's like <laughs> Do you have like Capricorn in you? My mom is a Capricorn um, and was a very formational element to me. Um, but I'm that's very flattering actually because I feel like Capricorns really have it together in a way that I pretend to. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you pretend well then. <laughs> well, I'm a Leo cusp, so I, I have Virgo. I feel like I, the older I get, the more I'm like growing into that side of the cusp. The Virgo. August 22nd. So it's definitely the last day. And in some astrology cultures, it's actually the first day of Virgo. So yeah, that's, I think, where the earth comes from. But otherwise, my chart is like all fire. It's just a bunch of, just a bunch of fire. So yeah. And that's actually something when I'm telling jokes, um, I try, I think one of the, one of the, the stand-up sets that I bombed the hardest was right before I went on stage, the showrunner who was gonna introduce me um, was like, what's your star sign? And before I could say anything, my friend was standing there and I was like, oh, she's a triple Leo. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> Which I don't like people to know necessarily, I mean, it's like, whatever. It's just like, it really brings out an opinion in people that have opinions about astrology. And so I was like, it's, it's, it's fine. And then I hear her on stage being like, and our next comedian is Shilpa Joshi, who's a triple Leo. And it's all, it's like all queer people in the crowd. And you just hear this groan <laughs> throughout the whole audience. And I was like, what the fuck do I do now? Can I say something about that? Like, I was going to say Leo for you, but every time I try to guess and I say Leo and I'm wrong, the person looks offended. <laughs> so, like, I stopped, like, I'm taking it out. <laughs> I don't know who all these bad Leos are out there. 
Vanessa bad name. <laughs> I I don't know, but yeah, that groan. I was like, oh, you got it, Shilpa. You could do the jokes, and then I just like could not. <laughs> I just didn't do very well, but you know, it happens. Yeah, yeah. People people do get offended, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's so far so good. <laughs> so what what are some current projects that you're getting into these days? So let's see. Uh, I am applying to grad school, as I said, it's taking up a lot of time, taking up way more time than I would have thought. Um, and I feel fortunate that I have the time to dedicate towards it, but I am really excited to move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, I am really, <clears throat> I'm really interested in supporting the nonprofit that I serve on the board for. I've been doing a lot of help uh, supporting them transition from their founding executive director to uh, finding a new executive director. Um, so it's the National Queer Asian and Pacific Islander Alliance. Uh, it's very close to my heart because it was the first, their conference in 2018 was the first time I'd ever been in a room um, with only queer South Asians. Um, I mean, prior to that, I'd maybe met only like five or 10. I mean, it's, it's just not like, especially if you're not in California or New York, I feel like meeting queer Indian people, queer Desis is far less common, just queer Asians in general. Um, and so going to this conference where it was like all queer Asians, and then we got to have a breakout of just, you know, just the Indian kids that were there, Bangladeshi, you know, Nepalese, Sri Lankan, um, South Asians was really, it was electric. It was like, it was like nothing that any of us had ever felt before. And we couldn't stop like hugging each other and like squealing and like talking about who we were and how we got there. And it just made me feel whole in a way that I'd never ever felt before um, and never felt so seen before. And I wanted, I wanted to bring that feeling to other people, particularly other queer South Asians that I know that are just sort of like floating <laughs> around <laughs> in spaces. And so, but Encapia, like so many nonprofits is going through a really tough year, um, you know, Fundraising is difficult. We've had to put, we, we do a bunch of in-person movement building, obviously like, you know, we, we help queer Asian organizations that are at like the state and city level, um, figure out how to raise money, how to hold events, like do all this fun stuff. And all of that has been put on hold. So like we've moved everything over to Zoom um, and now our fat, founding executive director who's been with the organization for 15 years is transitioning out, transitioned out and we are in a nationwide executive director search. And so I'm really looking forward to being able to put more time to that once my applications are done. Um, it's such a dope, brilliant organization. Um, we do a lot of stuff for like family acceptance work, uh, which is I think really critical. Uh, we put out um, how to come out to your family members guides in different languages and have like videos of just like aunties, like, you know, Filipino uncles and like Indian, Pakistani uncles and like people that are just talking about their queer family member and like old, mostly elders and like how they came around to it, what their journey was, how they're proud of them. You know, we have like queer Asian parents that come to our conferences 
that are straight and they just give kids hugs and they just like sit down and talk to kids that most of the time come from families that have like abandoned them or disowned them or not talking to them anymore. Um, and it's just, it's, it's like building those connections and then also being able to build connections with queer elders. Like so, so much of our queer elder community is gone because of the AIDS crisis and we don't have, you know, like we have this gap that's so easy to pretend like queer people just came out or just started coming out. And it's like, no, they didn't. Um, and so, you know, being able to be in a space where you meet somebody who's like in their fifties and has two kids and like, what do they do with their life? And like, are they, you know, what's their spouse like and where'd they meet and how they talk to their family about, you know, like all these questions that you couldn't really get answered anywhere else, you know, you finally have a network to start talking to people and answering them. And it like slowly makes you feel, feel more real and slowly makes you feel um, like you also can live into your forties and fifties, like things that I couldn't really imagine because I didn't know how I was going to get married or like what that would look like. And I'm not out to any of my family in India. So shout out to any of my family. If they like find this podcast, like what's up, you know, like, <laughs> it's just like, I mean, I'm obviously over it. Like, I don't care about hiding it. And like, if they don't know that something's up, I'm 33 and I'm not married and basically in Indian culture, that makes me like gay, <laughs> just no one talks about it. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's been, it's been, it's, it's been like, life-giving and identity affirming in so many ways and I want to I want to be able to like bring that experience to other people um other young people other people that are just coming out maybe leaving an arranged marriage and just coming out in their 30s or 40s that happens a lot in our cultures too and creating space for that so I really love this organization I'm I'm really lucky I was just I was just nominated to be co-chair of the board so I'm going to be helping out with them a lot in the coming months um that's one thing. And then I feel like because of grad school applications, I've become more distant from like the mutual aid work that I was doing over the summer and the early fall. So I really want to reconnect with comrades. And I think every time we have a storm, it's like really, it's, it's just really jarring to think about how many people are outside more than ever. Like, just like where my office used to be, it was in Old Town Chinatown in downtown Portland. And there are there are more people sleeping outside than there are offices in these office buildings, you know? Like, it's just like, it's just things that are really hard to have your, wrap your head around when you know there's shelter that they're leaning up against, but they're not allowed to go inside of. Um, and so in the fall, when we had like really bad wind and rainstorms, like, you know, organizing just to like get bricks from people's yards so that we could help people secure their like tarps and, and tents. And now that's transitioning definitely more into like winter supplies and coat drives and, you know, getting people like small, you know, like little like uh, grills and stoves and, and like things like that. But it's like, it's all that stuff that just makes you feel so frustrated and a little bit helpless, um, even with the work that you are doing when you realize that it would be very easy to just like, I don't know, break into a building that's not being used like Concordia University <laughs> that has dorms <laughs> that the Mormons bought that is sitting empty. <laughs> I don't know, I'm just saying. It's not, it's not like, I don't know, I've just been thinking about it. <laughs> so yeah, just thinking about how to, how to dive back into the mutual aid work. I, I think that's, that's what I'm looking forward to.
Um, so you say, yeah, you've been like doing this work, organizing for like 10 years. What, um, what do you feel like has changed um, from when you started to like how things are now? That's a great question. I think that social media and our um, and access to technology, while it is still class stratified, there are definitely young people that do not have access to tech and the pandemic has really made that more sharply apparent as kids can't log on and can't follow with school and are just dropping out. I do think that the broader access to technology overall in the last 10 years has made it so more people are able to engage with the like, you know, marketplace of ideas, of, of literature, of like, I just like love how many PDFs of like books, you know, like all Franz Fanon and like all of these like really exciting things that I don't think I would have been exposed to in 2005 or 2009. Like, I think I would have had to buy something online or rent it from a school library or something like that, or now just available online in PDFs and people are sharing like pedagogy of the, of the oppressed. And, and that's cool. And it's also cool to have things even more further distilled down into infographics and like memes that are shared on Instagram. Like as much as like highbrow academics, you know, rag on that. I think it's brilliant to be able to like get information to the masses and give people the language to talk about their oppression and talk about their liberation. And I think the Trump administration is another death knell, like the death rattle, right? Like it's, it's so much of that virulent strategy of hate and division that's like coming to a head, but it's also like sort of what happens to a star right before it like implodes and becomes a supernova it's like that's that's sort of what it feels like like yeah it's really really bad um and we are at a precipice where it could be like all-out civil war or we could like sort of like rise and like build something but you know come to whatever like it's not gonna be that kumbaya and it's also not gonna be a total civil war because um america is too vast and we don't have a culture of uprising um so i don't think I don't think either of those two are gonna happen. I think that America's a cancer. So we're just gonna like figure it out in the middle <laughs> and like sort of be emotional about it and like wind our way through sides. It's a, you know, sidestep, it's a crab. <laughs> um. <laughs> do you, wait, do you have like Zodiac signs for countries? Yeah, yeah, there are. Oh, definitely. J July 4th, 1776 is what- Oh. Yeah. tribute to United States birthday and if you do a, if you run that chart as if it was somebody's natal chart it is really insightful about America wow. I think you just blew Max's mind oh you should look into it it's amazing it's really it's like every I think down to like the city of Portland like anything that is place-based that had to be established on a certain day you can, I mean, there's there's obviously, you know, some discussion about it, but like, it is interesting um, that America is a cancer. <laughs> so if you like planted a tree and you knew when you planted it, could you do like a zodiac on a tree? Wow, that is interesting. Ooh, I don't know, because that feels, a tr planting a tree feels so fluid to me. Like, would it have been from the time it broke out of the Eight. That would have been my second question. Oak tree, is it the second it, it germinated <clears throat> out of the acorn in the ground? Or is it like, like when do you, 
Yeah, maybe the moment that if you have like seeds in a paper towel and then it the the sprout shoots out, maybe that's the moment. <laughs> You're like time <laughs> natal chart. <laughs> yeah, mark it down. <laughs> yeah, there's. I mean, the, yeah, there's a lot of astrology for a lot of things that I think we are not thinking about. But um, what was I talking about? Uh, America. <laughs> Wait, first, can I just interject for a second? It's so weird because when you said America is a cancer, I think it's interesting that Max automatically knew that you were talking Zodiac, but I thought you meant a cancer. <laughs> like, no, at first I thought you were talking about cancer, um, not as a Zodiac, but when you're talking oh, about like, it moving like, around, I was like, oh, you're talking about like the Zodiac cancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I meant it both ways. <laughs> I meant it both ways. Um, so, but there was something I was talking about. I totally forgot what my my train of thought was. Um, yeah, where we're at. I think. Uh, what do you guys think? What do you think is going to happen next? Do you think there's going to be a civil war? Do you think it's going to? I I mean I feel like 2020 has taught me that absolutely nothing is off the table, um, and anything is possible. Um, right. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm just sort of waiting for things. Yeah I, def yeah, I definitely have that feeling that you're talking about, about being like a little kid. I'm 31. So I felt like, um, you know, I was like, when I was a kid, I was told that if I left a room and I turned the light off, if I recycled, if I like did all these things, like the earth would be fine. And like, this is what we needed to do to like take care of it. I remember like watching these like things on Nickelodeon and stuff like, oh, I'm doing that. We'll be fine. But then like becoming an adult and realizing that like no matter what we do sea levels are still gonna rise and like all this stuff and I was like oh shit like that was <laughs> that was <all> bullshit <laughs> well do you know why that is actually it's because corporations particularly fossil fuel companies you you both might know this already in this in the 70s they found out that their actions were the leading to the lion's share of what was causing the climate crisis um, and there was a ton of research done on it and a ton of reports that came out and they suppressed all of it. They paid off a bunch of think tanks to write counter arguments like they did with cigarettes when they found out that they were causing all these cancers. Um, so they used that same playbook, but then they also paid a bunch of media outfits like Nickelodeon to push a narrative that it's people's fault that it's people's fault that the climate is changing, that global warming is happening, that we're, that we're heading towards a climate crisis and that people need to change their behaviors when 100 companies worldwide emit 76% of all greenhouse gas emissions. If I was to leave a car running in my driveway for the next 2000 years, it would still not amount to the amount of pollution that even one of those companies puts out in just one month. You know, it's like none of it is the same, but by making us feel like we're the culprits, it completely recused them of any responsibility. And we're still dealing with the ramifications of that today. Like that narrative has been so powerfully successful for them that they have completely skipped out on any accountability for the last 40 years. And that's why we are where we are. That's why the policy that I worked on was what we needed because they need to reduce their pollution, not us. Like we really like getting 10 people out of their cars and into a bus okay sure maybe but like getting even one of the companies in oregon that pollutes at the level that it does to reduce their pollution even a fraction of an amount has way more impact way more impact you know and that's like the lie that we've been fed so yeah 
Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Talking Nickelodeon. Wow, shit. Nickelodeon. I, I actually did not know that. So, wow. Yeah. Um, the same hundred companies we scaled down to Oregon and we saw the hundred largest polluters in Oregon were responsible for 84% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Just 100 companies. So that's more than all of our passenger vehicles, all of our houses, all of our small businesses combined. Yeah. I'm trying to think about like, when was the first time I heard the phrase carbon footprint? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, that is something that they came up with. That is completely an idea of Shell and Exxon and Exxon Mobil. Mm -hmm. like, the very concept of a carbon footprint was come up, was developed by fossil fuel industries to tell people that they need to fly on planes less or they need to feel guilty when they fly on planes. <laughs> you know? If you if you think about the carbon footprint as like a oil company lie, it makes me think that you could see veganism as potentially um, this oil company um, uh, idea too. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, uh, vegans are patronizing as fuck sometimes. Um, <laughs> And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the thing that I said this entire podcast that's gonna get me canceled. On <laughs> well, you know, let me just give me the time marks that you want me to edit, edit out. <laughs> cool. I mean, I have spoken at length about how I think veganism is a scam, so I <laughs> I don't care. But yeah um all right yeah. so i want to i want to take it back to last month um a little bit um, november 3rd 2020 where were you at emotionally psychologically physically oh you mean 67 months ago <laughs> yeah. 140 years ago <laughs> On November 3rd, 2020. <laughs> um, what, that, I don't, what is happening with this last month? <laughs> Holy shit. Um, so it was one of those things I had, I really stupidly scheduled to take the GREs on October 30th. Why did I do this? I don't know. Totally bombed it because I was becoming more and more obsessed. I like ignored the news cycle on the election um and then it came to a point where I just like couldn't ignore it anymore and so that point was like right before I took the test which was really fun um it was uh a, it was it was one of those moments that made me miss being a pack animal I mean I was in DC when Obama was elected we drove we like all piled in cars drunk as hell sorry uh and drove down to the White House <laughs> with like thousands of people that just manifested there organically because we were so excited. I was 19 or something and 19 or 20 and like yeah it, there was just like all of these people that showed up you know and the inauguration and just like it was I think on the day itself I really 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 missed my community. Um, political geeks you know like radical activists, like people that, people, I, I find myself like most identifying with people that have extreme disdain for 
politics mm-hmm. yet can't ignore them because they run our lives like those are my people um and so especially for like presidential election and like the federal stuff because mm-hmm. it's it's just it's just such it's like the that game show in the 70s where somebody stood in the air tunnel and then they just covered them with glue and then they shoved dollar bills in there and then everyone tried to stick the dollar bills to themselves and whoever stuck the most became president of the United States of America. <laughs> That's gonna be the sound bite for this episode. <laughs> That's it. So I was like, why would I pay attention to that game show? I don't care about that game show. And then that game show is like uh, three hours away and I'm like, oh my God, I can't stop thinking about this game show. And so that was basically me on election day, um, you know, did a crash course of like listening to the clips on Twitter of like who, what states I needed to pay attention to that we needed to flip for the electoral college and like all that stuff. And, you know, I, I, um, I got some of my more like politically, so I live with two artists, I live with my sibling and my partner and they are really passionate about politics in their own way but like I was like geeking out like Super Bowl level like you know I like I needed to be around people that were just geeking out and they were you know not geeking out (laughs) so I just like went socially distanced on someone's patio and like consumed as much of the the news cycle the day of as I could and then of course we all figured out that nothing was going to be determined and it was going to be like a week of hell or 10 days of hell or we continue to be in hell and um it was just yeah so but like the day of I think I really missed being oh especially the day Saturday the Saturday following the election when everyone when when we got um when Biden got Pennsylvania I think it was right and then that was like that was like yeah. way set us way over the um threshold that we needed for the electoral college and all of my social media news feeds started blowing up with friends of mine in Philly, in DC, in New York, in Miami, just like flooding the streets organically. And I was like, no one is doing that here. <laughs> like, I think there was like 10 people standing at Pioneer Square waving like Biden flags. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Like, <laughs> I didn't vote for Biden. I mean, I voted for Biden. I voted against Trump, you know? Like, <laughs> I didn't like vote for that man <laughs> um, specifically. And I think those are the people that were really excited that came out in the street in Portland. And I was like, man. And I was like, oh, I was like, all this like soca and dance hall being played in like Brooklyn. And I was like, damn it, why am I here? <laughs> uh, so that's, that's what I miss the most um, of, I guess, like election season. And I was, I was like frankly relieved to have it be over because it's just been the thing that we can't ignore that's been plaguing our lives. Um, that at least the election was over and it looks like the results are gonna be verified and then like whatever is gonna happen is gonna happen in the way that it should. Um, and it seems more certain than it did. It seems more certain with every passing day that that's what's gonna happen. So that's encouraging. Um, the, like the more distance I can put between myself and the election, the better. Like every single day feels better than the day before because that shit was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, Are you looking at me, Melanie? It's so hard to tell. Yes, I am. Just, Sorry. When we're I in the booth, normally you just elbow me. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, that, that was it for me. I don't have any more questions. Um, 
yeah, yeah. I think we're done. We've been going for an ooh, hour over an hour and a half at this yeah. point. So, so now um, it's time for segments. I'm stating facts, 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 facts. There are roughly 10,000 bird species in the world and more than 900 have been recorded in North America. I'm stating facts, 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 facts. Uh, so now, um, I think this is a good spot for us to close out the show. Um, it's time for parting words. Max? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Shopa, for being our guest. Um, it's been great talking to you, learning about you, um, laughing with you and hanging out with you. Um, so yeah, thank you for being here and talking to us. Um, thanks, Melanie. Um, thanks to all of our listeners. All right. Um, and my parting words, I would also like to thank Shilpa for um, speaking with us about her work um, and her life and her budding career in stand-up um, and just all of the ways that she is kind of dealing with and living with this new world that we're now in. Um, Max, as always, it's a pleasure co-hosting with you. Um, and my parting words um, are, um, if everyone could just really try to, to, to avoid saying things like, oh, 2021 is gonna be my year, or um, <laughs> can't wait um, to you know, move out of 2020, it's the absolute worst. Let's just not say anything. Let's just be really, really quiet um, for New Year's so that we can just move forward. Um, I agree. Don't jinx it, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> don't jinx it. Um, and Shopa, do you have any parting words? Sure. Well, this is a lot of fun. And Mel and Max, I appreciate you having me on. And I really appreciated the questions uh, because I'm not big into journaling. And so it's made me think and reflect on the year in a way that maybe I didn't, I wouldn't have done because I don't journal. So <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for holding this space to have this conversation and uh, laughing with me and you two are wonderful. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. All right. Good night, y'all. Bye, y'all. Bye.